Folks, we are speeding towards the holidays, and if you are looking for the perfect gift for that cyclist in your life, I recommend uh, getting them a subscription to the Velo News Pass or Active Pass because right now we have a great deal going on with both digital passes, Velo News Pass, uh, 12 month subscription for $39.20, and Active Pass, a subscription. For $79.20 gets you 12 months of that. Again, VeloNews Pass gets you access to all the exclusive content on VeloNews.com, a print magazine subscription, a bunch of other cool stuff. Active Pass, the long, long list includes uh, what I just said as well as coaching advice, access to events, deals from cool brands. You can find out all the details at VeloNews.com forward slash Active Pass. And right now, we have some really fun stories. Um, Dan Cavallari has been doing some great rundowns to uh, explain all the information he learned this year on bib shorts and road wheels by trying on a lot of bib shorts and riding on a ton of road wheels. And he picks his, both his best bib shorts and his uh, favorite road wheels of the year. So again, bellnews.com forward slash Active Pass. Think about getting one today for you or that cyclist in your life. Okay. Let's get on with the podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Venom News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a frigid Tuesday morning here outside of Boulder, Colorado. Winter is officially here. After everyone's riding indoors. And guess what? I went and rode outdoors this weekend. I did it. I had a gravel bike. I had panniers. I had a ton of clothing. And um, it's funny. Here's the thing about riding in Colorado. Uh, it may be 20 degrees outside, but it's a dry 20, which means if you layer up and have like a base layer and a shell and some thick thermal bibs and shoe covers and everything like that, it's actually not bad. Like I went and rode. It was 25 degrees. Um, my face got really cold, but like everything else was pretty toasty. And I bring that up because I used to live uh, back east in New York City where the humidity was much higher than it is here. And I remember it would be like upper 30s, low 40s, and it would be ungodly cold. And no matter all the layers you put on, the cold would just seep through and punch you in the face and everything would be cold and awful. And uh, I got to say, I would sooner take 20 degrees in Colorado than 40 degrees in New York City. That's my hot take. Well, cold take of the week. Hey, we got a great show coming up today. We are talking um, all about um, women's racing, some of the big storylines that have come out recently in women's racing, in addition to uh, getting into our Velo News International Cyclist of the Year Award, which we gave to Anna Vanderbregen. And uh, second half of the show, I have an interview with Lucinda Brand, who's going on an absolute tear in the international cyclocross scene right now. She has won the opening World Cup and a bunch of super prestige. I don't think she's been lower than like third place in a race. And uh, Lucinda Brand takes us all into um, that before we get to our uh, women's racing rundown. Um, I have Andrew Hood on the phone for the uh, the first part of this podcast. Andrew, we got to talk about a news story that was um, lighting up the airwaves on VeloNews.com that uh, we actually got a little interesting wrinkle to after it w went up. And that was, of course, Greg LeMond receiving the Congressional Gold Medal um, for being an amazing cyclist and a wonderful American. And this is sort of the highest distinction given to non-military, non-government people. Udi, um, what was your what was your thought when you first saw you know this story come to light a few months ago? Like, hey, Congress is thinking about giving Greg LeMond this congressional gold medal. 
Yeah, for some reason, I thought that he already had something like this before, but I guess I was mistaken. Uh, but yeah, I mean, well-deserved. I mean, come on, Lamont was uh, the legendary American rider, the trailblazer. I mean, there were some people that were over in Europe before he was, but of course, he was the one that really brought uh, cycling to the highest levels for the United States back in the day, way back in the day. And I just remember, you know, having a couple of... Uh, kind of uh, run-ins with – not run-ins. I mean just seeing Lamont in person. I remember back when I was in high school, uh, you know, he was racing in the Coors Classic. You know, that kind of tells how old I am. Uh, he was only a few years older than me. But uh, we went up there and I remember seeing uh, Lamont when he came over and went with Bernard he know when they were riding the look pedals for the first time. And it was really the first chance that the American fans could see that really the top flight – European pros in the United States back in the mid '80s, you know, pretty cool just to just to see and be that close to those guys. You know, we were kind of like uh, just high school punks in Colorado racing our bikes a little bit. My friend's dad was really into the masters racing scene, and we used to go watch all the races with Davis Finney and all those guys. And um, and then kind of flash forward, you know, when I first started covering European racing, Le Mans was done. And uh, it was kind of the early days of his kind of early clashes with uh, with Armstrong. And I remember one time I was traveling with Sam Apt and John Wilcoxon. I think one of my first tours actually. We ran into Greg Lamont on Alpe d'Huez. He was, in fact, it was. He said it was the first time he'd come back to the tour since he retired. Of course, he retired. You know, he was not happy with how he retired. He had some health problems, and then, you know, according to what he said, you know, ran into ran into the peloton at two speeds. And he was just getting dropped, you know, by these guys. And, you know, the go-go 80s, go-go 90s were in full splendor when Lamont kind of flamed out at the end of his career. So when he came back to racing, I remember having that conversation with him, uh, you know, on one of the hairpins uh, with Lamont. And just as always, you know, very forthright and honest with with his emotions. You know, really had never met the guy before really in person. And there he was telling me his whole life story. So uh, well-deserved for Lamont. To get this, he kind of remains an interesting figure in America, in U.S. cycling. You know, kind of, uh, he's he's always there, but he's not really there. Sometimes he's, uh, you know, he, he's he's uh, he's hard to get a hold of sometimes in the media. Uh, kind of sporadic. You know, sometimes he'll be real vocal and give a lot of interviews, and then he'll just go blank for almost a couple of years. And we're hoping that uh, I think he has his bike coming out soon and. We can get uh, Greg Lamont on the phone here and get him on the Villain News podcast soon. Yeah, bike brand coming out soon. I think it has officially launched and, and models will be available. I've seen some pictures of an e-bike that looks really cool. Um, we had Daniel DeVise, uh, the author, on this podcast a few months ago to you know explain the significance of the Congressional Gold Medal, why Greg Lamont was um, nominated for this by this um, U.S. representative for California, Mike Thompson – who's the big Lamont fan. Um, you know, the list of recipients of the Congressional Gold Medal includes George Washington, Thomas Edison, Walt Disney, Rosa Parks, and uh, only nine athletes individually, including Jackie Robinson, Roberto Clemente, Jesse Owens. So obviously, huge congrats to, to Greg Lamont. Okay, here's the wrinkle. In the days following uh, our story that we published, I received an email from a gentleman named Doug Shapiro. You may recognize that name. Doug was a, a great American cyclist of the same... Um, generation is Greg LeMond. I think he's the third American to have raced the Tour de France. And Doug was like, hey, I have a congressional gold medal. Greg's not the first cyclist. Um, and as it turns out, uh, this was a wrinkle of history. Um, Doug and Greg were members of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team, summer Olympic team. 
Um, this, of course, was the U.S. Olympic team that never got to compete because the U.S. pulled out of the summer games due to, uh, you know, international politics involving R Russia. I believe those games were held in Moscow. Yeah, it was the whole Afghanistan thing. Moscow, 1980. Boycott Jimmy Carter. Uh, the Afghanistan invasion, so the, the Jimmy Carter boycotted the Olympic, and then the Russians boycotted '84, and that's why the Americans won all the medals. <laughs> so I was negative one years old at the time. Um, so forgive me if my memory lapsed. Anyway, as a um, as a gesture to the 450 or so athletes who did not get to compete that year. Um, Congress awarded them the Congressional Gold Medal. All 450 of them, they had a big ceremony in Washington, D.C. Doug Shapiro got his. Um, so did the other members of the team. And so did Greg LeMond. Um, apparently, Greg LeMond did attend that ceremony and get his Congressional Gold Medal. And he now um, keeps it somewhere, uh, I believe, at his mom's house. I, I was going back and forth with Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal because Jason had written about this. And we're like, wait, he already had one? Wait. Oops. <laughs> uh, anyway, interesting wrinkle in history. Greg LeMond now the recipient of two congressional gold medals. I don't think it diminishes at, in any way the one he has received individually versus the one he received as part of that uh, team. But just an interesting fact check there. Greg LeMond, two-time uh, congressional gold medal winner. <laughs> Weird story, Hoodie. Cycling is full of them. Indeed. <laughs> um, hey, let's get out to our talk about uh, what's going on in the world of women's cycling um, you have a story on the site today, Tuesday, Hoodie, that says that the organizers of the Vuelta a España are committed to expanding that race's women's event from a three-day event into, what, five days, seven days in the coming future. Um, this comes on the tails of ASO saying that it wants to expand La Course into a multiple-day stage race. Um, how do you read this this news that yeah it was interesting it, it was the, the comment from uh, javier guillen the wealth espana sport uh race director came during uh it was a uh, one of these uh kind of political functions it was a uh kind of a breakfast uh round table organized by one of the major uh wire services in madrid this morning tuesday morning and it was broadcast on uh well you know broadcast on zoom for anybody who wanted to watch. And it was quite interesting. Uh, Guillen was just kind of speaking about all the challenges that went into pulling off this year's Welta España. And, you know, having a few weeks, months of uh, hindsight, he kind of provided some interesting detail about what really went into the Welta. And I, so I ended up writing a story about that as well. And what was the interesting takeaway there, just about the sidebar about the Welta, was that they said they spent 6% of the operational budget on COVID protocols and mitigation efforts. Talked about how they had to hire out uh, four extra kilometers of barriers, had to hire 35, buy 35,000 face masks, had to do, had to organize and uh, run a, a complete traveling medical uh, kind of center to be able to do all these uh, PCR tests. Uh, they did thousands of those. So there's all out of pocket expenses for a race like the Welta. So it kind of, it was telling there just how much the COVID uh, experience cost the race organizers, plus coupled with uh, how much money they lost in terms of losing a lot of uh, maybe some sponsorships or mainly, you know, all those VIP experiences that all the races kind of piggyback on. You don't realize how much money the races make off those events. Um, so that was interesting. But lost in that whole uh, speech was just a few lines he said about how the Welta is committed to expanding. They're uh, currently, yeah, it's a three-day race. Started as a one-day race. 
uh, Challenge by La Vuelta, it's called. Started 2015, went to uh, two days, and then this past year, 2020, went to a three-day race. And of course, um, the Vuelta Unipublic is the is the name of the holding managing company. That's wholly owned now by ASO and the Tour de France organization from about what five years ago now. They bought half of it quite a few years ago, and then they bought out the rest of it. So you know the Vuelta is part of ASO, but Unipublic and the Spanish team kind of operate the Vuelta as a standalone group, and it's all Spanish staffers, and it's you know it's re- the Vuelta has retained its Spanish identity over the years despite being bought out by uh, ASO. So the takeaway there is, yeah, Guillen basically said we're going to expand our challenge by the by La Vuelta by uh, three days up to five up to a week. So we're looking at a, a perhaps an additional week long women's stage race on the World Tour, and that comes on the back of ASO promising and and it's supposed to be uh revealed early in 2021 probably february as my sources are telling me that they'll unveil the official route for the 2022 women's tour de france that's going to be my source is telling me about a week-long race they're between seven and eight days it's going to come uh about a week or two after the men's tour concludes and so that means it'll be held in august on the women's calendar uh, you know, fitting in nicely between you know where the where the uh, men's tour finishes in that nice space there on the calendar, so it's to be a high profile event for the women's calendar. And uh, what that tells me is just you know how committed ASO is to women's racing. Um, you know, if they're committing to a week long women's tour de France plus up to a week long women's race with the Vuelta España, those are two major high profile events. Uh, on the women's calendar that could happen. Uh, Guillen didn't put a timeline on the women's race, uh, but 2022 for the women's race, almost for sure. They don't want to do it next year because it would coincide with the Olympics and they want to have all the top women's stars at the very first women's Tour de France. So they just said, look, the women's, uh, all the women's stars are going to be going to the Olympics in 2021 in Tokyo. So let's just do it, do it right in 2022. So huge news for women's cycling. Yeah, that is huge news. I mean, look, fingers crossed, you know, it's, it's ASO. We've seen them have a not great relationship with, or not great reputation in women's cycling in years past. I mean, obviously they put on um, some of the biggest one day classics, but there was a period, I believe in 2019 when, you know, they weren't going to pay to have TV broadcast that they needed to have, you know, for like Liège, Bastogne, Liège, and some of these um, classics. La Course has ebbed and flowed between one day, two days, three days, and um, you know the format that they've had for that has definitely ruffled feathers, and uh, you know people have rightly called them out for not doing enough. But like you said, I mean, if ASO uh, two years from now is going to be the owner and operator of two week long marquee women's stage races, then that does represent a complete turnaround for that organization and its um, relationship with the women's Peloton. I mean, it would go from sort of the much maligned ASO of being one of the op- one of several different operators of women's races that, you know, received a lot of criticism year in, year out, to being the operator of the two biggest events. Um, and, you know... We've had a lot of criticism of ASO over the years for its relationship with women's cycling. So, I mean, I don't know if you can directly trace a through line between that criticism and that um, those calls for ASO to invest more in women's cycling and what we're going to see now. Um, but, you know, that is a potential. Yeah, it's interesting, Fred, about how and perhaps why uh, ASO is, is more interested in women's uh, cycling. Not to say that they haven't 
done, you know, taking the right steps with La Course and Challenge by La Vuelta. And like you said, they, they, they have the women's race. They were supposed to do the women's Perry Roubaix this year that was canceled by COVID. Uh, it's not to say they don't support women's racing, but there has been some fair criticism that they, they could be doing a lot more. And I think there's a couple of uh, underlying factors about why they are getting interested. One, I think there is, uh, you know, the continual progression of women's world tour, women's level of racing increasing and improving, becoming more professional, more money, more sponsors are backing it. You're seeing more of the trade teams now having a women's and men's world tour team. I think now we have five world tour teams that have both men's and women's teams. And I think it's a trend that will continue. And perhaps one day we could see where almost all the world tour teams have uh, both sides represented fairly. And I think also there's undercurrent of uh, some political pressure for sure, because a lot of the racing in Europe is backed by public money. Um, you know, every time I start, a start town, a finish town. That's the local governments paying that money. Uh, the regional communities pay a lot of money. You know, you have the big Grand Depart or the, the Vuelta España, you know, leaves from Galicia. And it's the local government paying millions of dollars to bring these events in to for the men's races to bring these events into their communities. And there's a lot of pushback from people saying, you know, A, is that an appropriate expenditure of public money? And B, if you are spending that money, you have to spend an equal amount of that money or at least very close on women's sport. So I think it's a way for ASO to kind of diffuse some of those attacks. And we did some reporting even during this year's tour a little bit about how there was some political pushback against the tour uh, with the Green Party coming in, uh, becoming more influential in, in French internal politics at the local level. So uh, the tour wants to maintain good relationships with the politicians that bankroll their race. So I think this is why we're seeing a much more public face for ASO being more green, being more sustainable, trying to reduce their carbon footprints, kind of some of these talking points that uh, they're taking more seriously. Now, they're not just slogans. They're actually doing real action. And I think that is one of the top reasons I would say that uh, ASO is showing more interest in women's cycling. But uh, Guillen also underscored, you know, he basically said it's good business too because we're getting we're hearing from our sponsors we're here we're seeing the numbers on our racing the ratings of our of our broadcast women's racing is show is, is getting more interest from sponsors and from fans so this is a for-profit business running bike races so if there's money there that's another reason why ASO is going to be going there two things i mean the first is that if they are definitely you know if they're getting political pressure i mean Political pressure is born from grassroots pressure. Grassroots pressure is born from what people want. And, you know, sometimes you see people like uh, being vocal on Twitter or trying to push forward movements that, you know, at the time seem like trying to roll a humongous stone uphill. And I think this is a good example of like, that's not the case, man. It's like over years, over time, one voice becomes 10 voices, becomes 50 voices. And the next thing you know, you have a real political movement that get something accomplished. I mean, I credit um, some of the women and women cycling back in like 2011, 12, 13 for really, um, you know, really clamoring uh, to ASO and like making the point to ASO, you put on this huge men's race, you don't have a women's race. I mean, Catherine Bertine doing her film Half the Road, um, which led to the creation of La Course. Um, you know, so many women being vocal um, in interviews, the creation of the Cyclist Alliance, you know, the further professionalization of women's cycling. And it's sort of like every drip in the bucket ends up leading to um, something like this over time. And the second thing is good business. And it's true. I mean, I, you know, something I've been asking every women's cyclist, I've pro cyclist is like, 
you know, we get to see, we get to see some of the races on TV, but like we we get we miss so much of the action. And like, tell me what happened in the first you know hundred k of this race. And I think that's the next one of the next big barriers for the sport is like if they can show that it's good for business and good business on the ground, um, then they can show that it's good broadcast business too. Um, cyclocross races now are getting you know similar TV ratings as the men's cycle, the women's cyclocross as the men's cyclocross races and women's racing. Um, I think that the next big barrier there is getting more events televised and more of the events televised. Uh, another little wrinkle that came to mind is like, okay, this is happening 2022. So this is going to happen after two of the biggest names in women's cycling retire Lizzie Dynan and uh, Anna Vantabregen, which is kind of a bummer. I mean, they're both so strong. They're both sort you know, in the prime of their careers and they are both saying they're going to retire after 2021 um, and there's going to be these two big races on the calendar. I wonder I wonder if that could change any decisions going forward. Well, yeah, that's interesting because uh, I spoke last week, I guess uh, maybe two weeks ago already, to a sport manager at uh, F. Deju's uh, women's team, the F. Deju Nouvelle Aquitaine Futuroscope team. Uh, Steven Delcour, French, uh, French manager, been running that team for, uh, I think, better part of a decade. And he was just saying how big the women's tour de France will immediately become within women's cycling. He just said that having the yellow jersey, having that iconic uh, leader's jersey available to the peloton is just going to raise the level of the racing to a much higher degree than, than we're usually used to. Because he said by having the Tour de France bring all of its prestige and history and just the organizational might into the women's peloton in such a dramatic way – he, he, he went so far to say it's going to be, be kind of become a before and after moment in women's cycling. He says, by having the Women's Tour de France, it's a name that's inter- internationally recognized. Everyone knows what the yellow jersey is. Everyone knows what the Tour de France is. And so it will have immediate impact both within the peloton, perhaps even uh, inducing these, these women, these racers to maybe prolong their careers by another half year or whatever to race, to have that shot of becoming the first person to become the first yellow jersey and then of course just what it means in terms of the you know remember back in the day you know everyone would come over and cover the tour from the united states why because that was the only race anyone knew about so to have a women's tour de france i think is going to be huge for the sport hey we're running low on time but we got to mention um van de bregen you know yes she's set to retire um she was our international cyclist of the year that is the annual velo news award that we give the highest award that we give, and uh, we gave it to her this year because of the absolute tear she went on during the meet of the rescheduled season. Six wins, uh, winning the Giro, de, the Giro Rosa overall, the Dutch National Road Race, National Championship Road Race, her first at the elite level, which I didn't know about, um, the uh, La Flèche Wallonne, the European Continental Time Trial Championships, and then the two big ones. She won Road Worlds Road Race and Road Worlds in the time trial, which is something that no one has done in 25 years in women's racing. And, um, you know, when we select our international cyclists of the year, a lot of times we're looking for that rider who accomplished something that was like historic, that was like outside the box. You know, last year was Vander, Matthew Vanderpool because he won cross worlds. He won big giant road pro road races and he won mountain bike world cups. And that's just something that no one has ever done. So, you know, it, it, it was something that, that was sort of unprecedented. You know, I remember when we gave it to Pauline Ferrand Prevost for winning world championships in mountain bike, cyclocross, and road in the same calendar year. It's like, wow, that's outside the box. And not, you know, not every single year has, a, you know, something historic and totally outside the box happen. But this was something that I felt and that we felt 
really exemplified that was Van de Bregen um, winning Road Worlds, ITT, and Road Race in addition to winning all this stuff. And so she is our uh, champion, our international cyclist of the year. There was a lot of momentum for Wout Van Aert. Wout Van Aert had a great year. But I think the stuff that he accomplished was sort of within the realm of what we've seen other riders do in a very successful year. Um, but Van de Bregen, you know, I, I feel like she's been on our she's been on our short list a number of times to be the international cyclist of the year. But it's almost like Van de Bregen and Annemiek van Vluten have kind of canceled each other out because they both tend to have amazing results in the same season. And it's sort of like, well, who had the better year? You know, Annemiek won these races. Van der Bregen won those races. You weigh them up against each other and it's pretty even. And um, this year, you know, Annemiek was on the, you know, we'll never know what happened if she hadn't broken a wrist at the Giro Rosa, if she would have gone on to win all those races too. But, um, you know, Sometimes you just got to look at the results sheet and, and see who the best was. So chapeau to you, Anna Vanderbregen, for being our international cyclist of the year. All right. Andrew Hood, thank you so much for coming on the horn. Um, we are we will wait with bated breath to see the Women's Tour de France. Um, let's hear from Lucinda Brand. He's going to take us inside the world of uh, international cyclocross racing. Okay, my guest today on the podcast is Lucinda Brand. Lucinda is a double threat in the world of cycling, one of the best pro road racers out there, and right now, the best cyclocross racer um, on the planet. Uh, she races with Trek Segafredo on the road and the Telenet Belwell Lions, and Lucinda has been on a tear so far in the 2020 um, pro cyclocross season. Um, I don't think you finished lower than third place. You won the World Cup opener. Um Lucinda's crushing it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Lucinda. It, you know, making time in your busy schedule of just dominating cyclocross races. <laughs> Thank you for this uh, big introduction. <laughs> so whenever, um, whenever I talk to cyclocross racers at this point in the season, sort of November, December, I'm always really curious about, um, well, especially those who race on the road, like how you structured the end of the road season into an off season, then building back into the cyclocross season. And this year with Corona and the calendars thrown completely, you know, out of what they normally are. I'm just really curious, first of all, what did your, the end of your road season into the beginning of your cyclocross season look like? And how different was it than you would see during a normal year? Yeah, it was really different. Um, yeah, uh, the road season started really late. Uh, maybe on a point you're normally uh, going down a bit in races already uh, towards uh, cyclocross season. But um, uh, next to that for me was also strange because uh, the races I was scheduled, I couldn't do them all because uh, I became twice uh, sick. So that also changed the plan again. And when I was fit again, um, yeah, I tried to do some road races still, but I also had a knee problem, which interrupted again. So it was like nothing went good this year. Maybe it's better to have it in 2020 than <laughs> in a different year. But um, yeah, that on the other hand made that I didn't have so many races done before the cyclocross started. And uh, that I didn't really needed the off season or a restart or things like that uh, and then I yeah easily could jump into racing of cyclocross uh, still uh, wasn't really on the perfect level but it was going good already 
and then I was able to improve uh, a little bit during the uh, start of the season already. So you're kind of feeling maybe fresher actually this year than you might during a normal season when you would have done the full road season, you know, all the big races and then come into cross. Yeah, when I, when I should have done a full season, then I definitely needed a little break or I uh, you go in the, se- in the cross season, do a few races and then take a break or you take a break and then start and continue till Worlds. And now I will do full program without any break. And so, yeah, it's a really big difference. And normally you always try to find a weekend where there are less big races to go to Spain and train one and a half week there. And also this, um, yeah, there is another weekend without uh, big races. That's first step. And the second step is it's really hard to travel in a safe way to a different country at the moment, of course. Yeah, and I've been interested just in general in how elite cyclocross racers have dealt with the um, amazing shrinking cyclocross season of 2020 to 2021. You know, we started off with, I think, 14 World Cups on the schedule. I mean, it was supposed to be this enormous World Cup schedule. And then with COVID, it seemed like every few weeks it would shrink by one or two. And now it's down to five World Cup races. Um, How do you think that changes the um the dynamic how will that change the dynamics of the races but also how you go about approaching the season from like a a training rest recovery perspective um yeah well um planning wise especially in the beginning of the season was difficult and you had to uh, just make the decision to plan it uh, almost week by week you could look a little bit further than that but there was so much unsure um but I think for now, um, the whole cyclocross world is doing a great job. Um, the, the World Cup circuit is maybe uh, a lot smaller than planned. Uh, of course, that's a pity, but at least we have one. And um, next to that, we have a lot of different um, big races. Every weekend we can race. And um, that also makes, at least for me, uh, now I'm very good in all the classifications also. Most of the cross races which are still on the on the calendar are part of one of the competitions. It's really hard to make a decision and a choice in that. And so far, I luckily uh, can combine it all. But uh, like you said, you need to really make a good plan for balancing um yeah, that you don't get too tired and that you make space for still good training. Um, so I had already twice a week that I haven't been in the forest to do a really hard interval session during the week, but that I focus more on endurance. Uh, of course, you feel it a little bit during the race that you miss maybe a little bit of that push and a quick reaction, but um, it can really help, of course, um, yeah, to make the long season uh, a good one also in the end. Yeah, I think a lot of times um, readers just readers actually forget how long the cyclocross season is um, during a normal year when you're starting in, boy, sometimes late August, early September, going all the way through into February. And during a normal year, one of the dynamics I always love to follow, especially in women's cyclocross racing, we start we're starting to see this in men's too, is um, different women sort of dropping in at different points in the season. You know, you'd see like Pauline ferrand Prevost and uh, Yolanda Neff sort of come in after Christmas or around Christmas. And Mariana Voss, she might do a full season, but she might also 
kind of drop in for the second half and she's fit and the gals who have been racing the entire season, maybe they're starting to fatigue a bit and it makes for really exciting racing, especially in the second half of the season because you don't know who is on the way up, who's coming down, who's tired, whatever. And, and you know, I think last year, I mean, we just saw like a different winner at the World Cup, I feel like so many weeks or maybe it was two years ago. I mean, do you expect to see that this year or do you think that because the season is shortened, because of Corona, um, it's going to be more of the same uh, cyclocross riders week in, week out throughout the whole season? Or do you expect to see some some big names drop in later in the year? Um, well, the last years we saw like some young riders who really focus on cyclocross uh, alone or uh, like mountain, combining it with the mountain bike, but having the main goal on, on cross. So we for sure have a, f- a few top riders who will do the whole season. But I do expect also that Marianne will do a few races uh, in the end of the year. And uh, probably also some other riders like uh, mountain bikers who want to prepare again or uh, other road riders. Uh, Christine was back last weekend again and she isn't doing a full season normally. So, um, yeah, indeed, it's it's nice to see different names. And also, especially, of course, in the front uh, to battle. Uh, and it, it's good to have so many riders, uh, yeah, uh, riding on the same level. And so many young riders. You know, in men's, in men's World Tour road racing, one of the stories from last year and this year that everyone's talked about is, oh, these, these young stars, you know, Remco and... Um, you know, Remco and Vanderpool, they're, they're battling and right at the front of the race and they're so young. And the whole time I've thought, you know, <laughs> women's cyclocross has, uh, has like a year advantage on them of seeing what it's like <laughs> when all of these talented youngsters come in at the same time and start winning. Yeah. You know, what was that like? Yeah. What was that like for you? What do you remember? I mean, this, this happened a lot last year, but I feel like it was starting even the year before where it's like. It's very visible in women's cyclocross because especially yeah actually all the races um are together with um juniors under 23 and elites so when there's a young talent um you see that yeah they will come uh in in the results of an elite uh race so it's very visible how much talent is riding around in women's peloton and um yeah of course sometimes i'm a bit like uh, uh wow uh if they have this age and they can do battle already uh, with us um, where it's going to end if they become a little older and maybe have a little bit more training, you know, like <laughs> a little bit more experience. Then, um, yeah, it's really something to think about how you can improve yourself to keep up with the, those young riders. Uh, on the other hand, it's only also uh, really good to see that there's always some new talent uh, coming up, uh, which keeps, uh, yeah, what makes sure that the level will stay high and um, that there is a future for the sport. That's always really important, of course. What do you attribute the explosion of young talent to right now? Why are there, you know, four or five, you know, women under the age of 25 battling it out at the front of the cyclocross races right now? Why do you think that is? Um, 
Well, first of all, I think, in, especially in cyclocross or other technique sports, it's uh, a very, a really big advantage to be started young because uh, it becomes a little bit of na- na- uh, nature, nature on, to, you know, to handle your bike and um, yeah, everything was is nature. You don't need to learn or practice that much anymore, maybe. Uh, and in cyclocross, that means you can save a lot of energy, which you can use. To ride, ride faster, of course. And another other point, I think, is also that uh, young riders, and that's also why you see it in the men's peloton on the roads, and maybe also in other disciplines, like with the social media, with the internet, uh, with the knownness there is, and you can get to the knownness. Um, it's also... Um, it makes that the riders are able to do uh, all things around training or in the training more professional already. So it means like they mo- know much more about how you have the good food balance, um, um, you know, like about recovery, about core stability, uh, you know, all those kind of things. I think it's much easier um, to get the knownness around you on a young age already. And of course, that will help to improve and to become better and stronger already on a younger age. Well, and I think that it also goes without saying that some of these big, you know, these really talented young riders are coming out of the Netherlands. And that's something I'm also curious about, which is, you know, (laughs) cyclocross has been big in Belgium and the Netherlands and France and and the low countries for years and years and years. But there's just this explosion of Dutch talent in, in women's cycling right now. And I mean, why do you think specifically, what is the Netherlands doing um, so well right now that uh, that there's so many good young women. Yeah, uh, f- hard to say. Really, one thing, of course, uh, because why do we see it more with women than with boys? Maybe we see it also with the boys, uh, but of course, um, there, yeah, the the amount of riders also from diff- different countries is much bigger. So maybe for boys, it stays a little bit more difficult to reach the top to get uh, a view on yourself but um, I think a really important thing in the Netherlands is that from a young age you can do races but you can race on your own level so it means like you can do national races but you can also do just in your region some small races or with your club some small races a lot of clubs are having uh, own circuit where there are no cars so it's very safe environment to train and to have a little competition Um, and also um, if I know from uh, Belgium girls need to ride with the boys in competition till maybe 14 years old or something or 15 years old it's quite old and in the Netherlands um from your 12th you're separated for sure and before you can also sometimes have some races where you don't need to battle with the young boys and um of course i think it's normal that you keep a lot more fun riding against only women and that you really can have a big battle instead of being just dropped and really make a race uh and i think um, then you keep them in the competition and that's then you have more riders who stay in the competition. So if you have more riders, there is also more chance you have talent in, in this group, of course. 
Interesting. No, I mean, and we don't just see it in cyclocross, obviously, in the road and in mountain bike, too. I mean, the Dutch have done such a good job with female cyclists. And here in the United States, we always look at the Dutch explosion around like world championships <laughs> and stuff. We're like, gosh, you know, it just seems like just a limitless. It's never ending. <laughs> never ending. Some new Dutch girl. Oh, gosh. So, you know, oh, hey, so she's retiring. But oh, they have three more coming up behind her. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, Lucinda, oh, oh, actually, last question for you. What's it like doing a cyclocross race with no fans? I mean, so much of what we love about cyclocross is the cowbells and the crazy people. What's it like doing it in silence? To be very honest, it's very boring. Um, I really miss the public. And, and uh, yeah, of course, everybody hopes that we can leave this behind very soon for multiple reasons. But, um, yeah, cyclocross without crowds, is, it's, it's a different sport, actually. <laughs> Well, we're all hoping and praying and crossing our fingers that um, that the phase of world history we're in will end soon. There will be a solution and uh, people can go back to bike races. Um, Lucinda Brandt, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and answering all my fun questions. This was a lot of fun. And um, hey, let's, uh, let's catch up later in the cyclocross season. Love to see how you're doing at the World Cups and uh, World Championships. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for the chest. <laughs>